1: I'm Laura Landon. Welcome to the New Books Network Journalism Podcast to mark 150 years of The Nation magazine. The Nation began publishing in July 1865. It's the oldest weekly magazine in the United States, a flagship of the political and cultural left. To mark its 150th anniversary, The Nation's archivist, Richard Kreitner, is publishing The almanac a daily blog on the magazine's website about what happened on that day in history and how the nation covered it. Today on our podcast, Richard Kreitner talks about the week of May 10th to May 16th, a week that includes stories about the first woman who ran for the presidency of the United States, the death of Bob Marley, and Israel's declaration of independence. We interviewed Richard Kreitner from the nation's New York offices via Skype. The interviewer is Bruce Wark.
0: Well, Richard Kreitner, uh, on the podcast today, we're talking about uh, the week of uh, May the 10th to May 16th. And uh, we start with May the 10th, 1872. That's uh, coverage of Victoria Woodhull. She becomes the first woman to run for president of the United States. And, and what was that story about?
2: This was an article in The Nation from the year, uh, the year before that, 1871, when Victoria Woodhull was trying to get Congress to recognize women's suffrage under a very creative application of the 14th Amendment. And The Nation was responding to John Bingham's refusal to entertain that idea, and he had written the, much of the 14th Amendment, and they said this, The question will probably suggest itself to many. How long are our constitutions and laws to be interpreted by man-made, cast-iron rules of construction, in which no play whatever is allowed to the warm impulses, the passionate longings, the delicate fancies, the flashing intuitions, which the feminine half of humanity alone can supply?
0: And so the nation was on the side of female suffrage. But uh, at the same time, I still see the language of the time is uh, fairly, uh, you know, when they say uh, f- flashing intuitions, delicate fancies, and so on, it's still fairly what we would consider sexist language today, I guess.
2: Oh, absolutely. The, the nation supported women's suffrage for at least the first five or ten years or so of its existence, and then it, it, um, it turned against it. But even during that time, as you note, um, it was only in favor of women's suffrage, in, as you say, in fairly sexist ways.
0: Well, uh, I'm surprised by them turning against it. Why did the nation turn against the vote for women?
2: Well, this is a a theme that will um, be familiar to to listeners of your podcast as we go along through the weeks of the year, because the nation turned against almost every radical, or we would say now progressive, idea that had been founded to endorse. It turned against racial equality, women's equality, against labor although it wasn't labor wasn't much of an issue when it was founded in 1865 but in any case it, it became very conservative and um, and and in favor of the status quo very different from the way that it was in
1: 1865 Ooh. I shot the sheriff, the sheriff,
0: Well, as most listeners to this podcast will know, that's the famous I Shot the Sheriff by uh, Bob Marley and the Wailers. And uh, Richard Kreitner, the uh, Nation Archivist, you have uh, Bob Marley down for May 11th, 1981. What happened then?
2: That was the day that Bob Marley died of uh, complications from cancer in Miami. His plane was, was making a stop from Germany to Jamaica, and he passed away from uh, a cancer that was actually first discovered under his toenail, I believe. Um, and The Nation, three years later, reviewed a, a book of, of, about Bob Marley, a biography.
0: And, and who wrote that uh, review?
2: That was by a freelance critic um, named George Distefano, who about 10 years ago or so wrote a history of the mafia in America.
0: So could you read a bit from that review?
2: Sure, it's, it's a great, great piece. No great savant or leader, Marley was as confused as any of us by the maddening contradictions of life. He was, however, also a unique artist who articulated the hopes and sufferings of the poor and powerless through his direct, unaffected folk poetry and protest lyrics. Perhaps what is most significant about Bob Marley is that for a brief while, he managed to alter the terms of cultural exchange between first and third worlds. Until he came along, Western domination of the black West Indian psyche was near total encompassing everything from standards for high art to gangster movies and Coca-Cola. Marley seduced Babylon with a beat and a hard-won moral authority that no pop music figure before or since has managed to achieve.
0: And so that was May 11th, 1981, the day that uh, Bob Marley died and The Nation uh, ran that review of the book a little, a few years later. Um, What happened on May 12th that... uh, attracted your attention as archivist and that you decided to include in the almanac to celebrate 150 years of the nation.
2: Sure. Well, that was the day in 1820 that Florence Nightingale, founder of modern nursing, uh, was born. And, you know, alert readers will, will recognize that 1820 is before 1865 when the nation was founded, but, uh, you know, some days in history were busier than others. So so I picked one from, from before we were founded, but the nation did write about Uh, Nightingale in 1920 on her centennial.
0: Yes, I see it was by uh, James Rorty, who was the father of uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty.
2: That's exactly right. He was a frequent correspondent for the nation for for at least two decades, I believe. Uh, Actually, our our almanac entry of March 22nd is an excerpt of his article that's critical of the Grand Coulee Dam that he wrote in 1941.
0: So he wrote this piece for the nation in 1920, a hundred years after Florence Nightingale's birth. And, and uh, could you read a little bit from it? Sure.
2: With both hands, Florence Nightingale reached out to seize the world of reality for her sex. And there were not men in England strong enough or stupid enough or obstructive enough to stop her. Florence Nightingale was born a Victorian lady, destined, as she bitterly realized, to, quote, do crochet in her mother's drawing room, end quote and nothing much else. She was over 30 before she succeeded in winning through to the world of reality which she craved. But in achieving at last her triumph in the face of all the outraged conventions of her time, she conquered vicariously for multitudes of her followers.
0: Yes, and she's credited as the founder of Modern modern Nursing, a campaigner for many social reforms, and uh, the lady with the lamp. Richard Kreitner, uh, May 13th 1910 is the next event that the nation covered what was that
2: that was the day that uh the great boxer joe lewis was born
0: yes and um and so i was really interested in this uh, entry because uh even though the nation was sympathetic to the fact that joe lewis was black uh nevertheless the piece by the famous writer james t farrell also um as you point out sort of um, racializes things a bit.
2: Absolutely, and I think that was, I mean, as far as I understand, that was quite common, even, I mean, Jim Sparrow was a, was, was a real lefty radical in the 30s, at least. I think he turned to the right later on. But in, even in the 30s protest art, you see certainly some highly racialized depictions of, of black people in America.
0: And I think we'll hear that when you read this excerpt.
2: Dressed in a loud gray suit with a straw hat askew on his enormous head, Joe Lewis sat found. The son of exploited Alabama cotton pickers, he had in two years earned a million dollars in his so-called meteoric rise in the prize ring. He had just earned well over $100,000. Now he sat like a sickened animal. He is a large Negro boy with blowout cheeks, fat lips, and an overdeveloped neck. His face was puffed and sore. He dabbed his eyes with a handkerchief, revealing bruised knuckles. It goes on and on. I'm just going to skip ahead a bit. Photographers stood on chairs, waiting Lewis's exit, begging for just one picture. Loud cheers echoing from outside heralded Schmelling's departure, he was fighting Max Schmell. Lewis sat, still punch drunk. He went out like a drunken man, surrounded by cops and members of his retinue, his face hidden behind a straw hat and the collar of his gray top coat. Unsupported, he would have fallen. The helpless giant was pushed into a taxi cab and hustled away, while a crowd followed the police to obtain a glance at him.
0: Yes, and I think you point out that uh, Max Schmelling beat him in 12 rounds, beat Joe Lewis on that occasion, but that uh, Lewis had a comeback against Schmeling. How did that go?
2: That went very well. I believe he knocked him out in uh, less than three minutes. James Farrell's report was about the, the time when uh, Schmeling beat Lewis. It was called The Fall of Joe Lewis, but, but later on uh, he had his revenge.
0: You really see the writing talent there on the, on the part of Farrell.
1: Absolutely. You're listening to a New Books Network journalism podcast. Richard Kreitner, special assistant to the publisher of The Nation, talks about The Almanac, his daily blog to mark the magazine's 150 years of continuous publishing. When Israel declared independence on May 14, 1948, The Nation was a strong backer of the Jewish state, a far cry from today when the magazine is a foremost critic of the Israeli occupation.
0: The arat israel kam taam hayuddi ba uzvad mutor harokh hadat that's the uh, voice of David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister and considered the founder of modern Israel on a historic date, May 14th, 1948. So what uh, would you say about the nation's coverage of the uh, founding of modern Israel?
2: Well, the nation was not only not only covered from a journalistic standpoint, the nation was one of the most avid supporters um, certainly in the United States as a publication, possibly even in the world, um, of, of Israeli independence from, from man- British Mandate Palestine. The nation submitted tons of reports to the United Nations. The nation lobbied um, the Truman administration constantly to, to overcome some anti-Zionist skeptics in the State Department. So the nation actually participated um, directly in, in the founding of
0: Yes, and could you read uh, an excerpt from the editorial that the uh, nation ran uh, on uh, Israel's independence?
2: Jewish authorities have taken over most of the services. They collect taxes. They've even issued stamps for use within their boundaries and have announced the restoration of foreign mail service. More impressive still, they have set up an agency to control the properties of Arabs who fled as the Jews took over. Businesses are being managed where possible, Vineyards and other farms are being tended and their produce used, but the assets conserved for the legal owners. This, I should say, is the final proof of an established, responsible administration. At the same time, the Jews are fighting the Arab invaders and their local allies with courage and success. That they can hold out for a long time is certain. American army officers who have lately inspected the Jewish forces and training centers have reported a high morale and intelligent preparation. Already, Arab leaders are letting it be known that while they are committed to a holy war to blot out the Jewish state, they will also go about it gradually, accomplishing their end, as Asim Pasha said the other day, by attrition.
0: Yes, uh, you can really hear strong support there. But yet, yet, Richard, anybody who reads The Nation today will know that uh, The Nation today is a, is a very... Uh, a serious critic of Israel, to put it mildly. Um, What happened in the years since then to change the nation from a pro-Zionist publication to uh, a critic of of Israel?
2: Well, the nation was very disappointed with the occupation after 1967. Um, We were still writing and and publishing very pro-Israel arguments, while after that, well into the mid-70s, but there was an increase. I've written an entire memo about this, so it's pretty fresh in my mind. Um, there was a there. There were criticisms of the occupation through the mid seventies, saying that it would be um, you know deleterious to Israel's own security. But by around nineteen eighty 1980 or nineteen eighty one, when Christopher Hitchens came on board, actually, as I believe um, he was a prime mover of this of this shift, um, there was much more criticism of Israel in the Nation's Pages. And uh, in December 1981, there was a special issue called The Myths About the Middle East, co-edited by um, Kai Bird, who, who has since written, uh, I believe, a book about his, his time um, growing up in, in Israel and Palestine, um, which, which I would call the definitive moment when the, when the nation changed its tune.
1: You're listening to a New Books Network journalism podcast. Richard Kreitner, the nation's archivist, talks about The Almanac, his daily blog to mark the magazine's 150 years of continuous publishing. Richard has selected notable events from each week of the year, along with excerpts from related nation articles and editorials. For example, the entry for May 15th is pegged to Madeleine Albright's birth in 1937. Albright served as President Bill Clinton's ambassador to the United Nations. When Clinton named her the first female Secretary of State in 1996, a Nation editorial criticized women's groups and other backers for hailing the appointment of a hawkish pro-Israeli diplomat. As we continue our podcast, interviewer Bruce Wark asks Richard Kreitner about an event during the First World War and how the Nation covered it.
0: May 16th, 1918, and this, boy, Congress passes the Sedition Act, and you picked that one. Uh, The um, nation ran an editorial, and again, I was very surprised by the uh, nation's response to a piece of uh, legislation that I guess civil liberties groups would uh, say uh, really undermines civil liberties. And, and what did the Sedition Act uh, do? What, what was it, you know, uh, proscribing? It, it limited
2: free speech insofar as, as you could not utter um, or, or publish uh, anything that was seen as seditious uh, to the United States government.
0: Yeah, I see that the socialist leader, Eugene Debs, went to prison for a couple of years under that act for advocating for opposing conscription during exactly. the war.
2: And we featured that, that day on the Almanac um, a few weeks ago, and it quoted an article in The Nation about Eugene Debs from, I don't remember, 1919 or 1920, and it was the, the great civil liberties-defending nation that we know and love.
0: Now, uh, could you read us a select uh, as an excerpt from that editorial?
2: Sure. If the purpose of piling up sedition laws is to create a public atmosphere in which juries shall find it more difficult to live up to their judgment and conscience, such laws are vicious. Otherwise, they are hardly necessary. We know that the mind of the country is such today that disloyalty proved in court will be punished. But it may be asked, what harm is done by a bit of superfluous legislation? Which is what the nation was saying the Sedition Act was. Well, there is very real harm to the extent that this practice encourages the national advice of believing that the whole duty of civilized government is in putting laws on the statute. A vast enthusiasm for new laws and a vast indifference after their enactment is very much the American way of it. But even then, what harm? No harm, perhaps, in peace times when laws are passed amidst a claim and forgotten. Great harm when, in wartime, laws cannot be passed without arousing fears and irritations and to no clear purpose.
0: Yes, a very um, different kind of stance than the nation would have today, I think.
2: Absolutely. It feels tortured, even while I'm reading it. I'm not really sure what they're getting at. They're
0: <laughs> yeah. Used. yeah, saying that, you know, no great harm anyway. Um, uh, so yeah, it is tortured reasoning, isn't it? Exactly. So uh, in this week, May 10th to May 16th, the things you've chosen show a kind of evolution of the nation, I think, in, in several ways. Um, what and we've been talking about some of those things. How would you uh, characterize that, Richard Kreitner? Well,
2: I'm looking back over and I'm seeing three um, pieces about women. We had Victoria Woodhall in, in 1871 running for president. Florence Nightingale, a great social reformer. We wrote about her in 1920 on the centennial for birth. And then we also had uh, the coverage of Madeleine Albrecht. And there's no clear narrative. It, it shows that, that things things rise, things fall, things change. Um what else did we have? We had Bob Marley, so we've got a little bit of culture coverage, which we seem to have every week. Um, so a great, great array, and now also sports. I mean, a lot of people forget that, that uh, there's a politics to sport, sports as well, and, and the literature. And, and James Farrell's piece was probably my favorite of the week, despite its uh, regrettable dabbling in, in the racism of its time.
0: And in fact, when you mention sports, the nation does write about the politics of sports today.
2: We do. We have a great writer named Dave Zirin, who uh, is probably our most popular writer these days.
0: Well, Richard Kreitner, thank you so much for talking about uh, May 10th to May 16th, and uh, um, thanks again. Great. Thank you. See you next week.
1: You've been listening to a New Books Network podcast to mark the 150th anniversary of The Nation magazine, about how America's oldest magazine covered events during the week of May 10th to May 16th. Join us again next week as The Nation's archivist, Richard Kreitner, talks about how The Nation covered notable events later in May. You can read Richard Kreitner's blog, The Almanac, on the magazine's website at (music) thenation.com.